What's up, Bills Mafia? It's Joe Marino from the Draft Network, and I'm your host of Locked On Bills. Happy Wednesday to you. We're going to do a couple of different things here on this podcast. We're going to talk about the release of Spencer Long, and we're going to finish Twitter Tuesday uh, because you guys sent in so many items. We needed to do two days worth of Twitter Tuesday. And the very first question that I'm going to answer from Justin, I can't wait to get into it because it was quite revealing when I did the research on it. Uh, Also, we are going to do tackling the tough questions with the Bills defensive line on tomorrow's podcast. So you can be uh, certain that it will happen. Send in your items, whatever's on your mind, whatever tough questions you have, whatever takes you have, whatever. Regarding the Bills defensive line, send them in. The email is joe at thedreftnetwork.com. You can hit me up on Twitter at the Joe Marino by shooting me a DM. So whatever's on your mind with that Bills defensive line, send it in. First things first, the Bills cut offensive lineman Spencer Long. He was the primary backup last year, I think, at all three interior spots. First man off the bench. So if if when Mitch Morse went down, he went to right guard. John Feliciano went over to center. And um, I was a little surprised by this because you thought they wanted to maybe have him in the mix here, and especially with John Feliciano going down. But what I think we learned is that the Bills, pretty high on this Brian Winter signing. And they view him differently than just a kind of one-year veteran type minimum deal. And it sounds like he's probably going to have the the early opportunity to be that right guard. And it also says to me that they have a lot of confidence in Evan Bame, Ryan Bates, and Ike Botker to provide that versatility on the interior guys that can play center and guard. So they're very comfortable with those three guys in addition to it sounds like you know, this Brian Winters deal may be a little more than what people were thinking, you know, in terms of it being like maybe a one-year, very low-cost deal. You know, he could be getting paid a few bucks here, maybe more than we expected, and the Bills were able to save $2.4 million against the cap by letting Spencer Long go. So there was some salary implications here um, and obviously a, a strong message that the Bills are pretty comfortable with the depth that they have. You know, on one hand, I thought to myself, well, I mean, wouldn't you want to just keep them around just in case, maybe stash them on the practice squad because, you know, you can have up to six players that um, that have no matter how many years they've been in the league on your practice squad. And so, you know, I thought maybe they'd want to keep him around, but, you know, it's one of those deals where maybe they think he had a chance to go somewhere and start and they want to give him that opportunity uh, one other thing that came to my mind is, you know, well, why didn't Brandon Bean trade him? You know, if, if Bean was able to get draft picks for Marshall Newhouse and uh, Wyatt Teller and Russell Bodine, why couldn't he get anything for Spencer Long? And my thought there was that if Brandon Bean could, he probably would have. And this came down to probably some dynamics that exist with the salary cap situation across the league where it's going to re- be reduced Uh, compared to what everybody thought for next year, and teams probably very cautious when it comes to their available cap right now because there are rollover implications and that you do need to have cash on hand to sign players throughout the course of the year. So, you know, I think that probably played into it, and I'm sure if Brandon Bean could have recouped a draft pick for him, I I got a feeling that he would have done it. So I just kind of taking you through my mind as that news came through on Tuesday. All right, let's do Twitter Tuesday. Again, I'm really excited about this question from Justin because I did some digging and I learned some things. Justin says, correct me if I'm wrong, 
But after Trey White, isn't Taron Johnson the highest cornerback taken uh, by the Bills, fourth round, 121 overall? Do you think McBean going short-term cheap options at CB2 is their strategy, and do you believe it's sustainable and doesn't provide a weakness in the defense? So I've said on this podcast before that Sean McDermott always seems to make it work at cornerback two. Well, now I have the evidence to dig into. And I want to look at his defenses starting in 2012, um, but I'll also reference 2011 in Carolina and then his two seasons with Philadelphia. Sean McDermott has done some weird things at cornerback, and there's some trends here that we can gather from reviewing this data. And so let's start at 2012, and what I want to do is tell you what the result's going to be here, and then I'll take you through the process. The result here is that Sean McDermott literally always has something strange going on with his cornerback situation, whether that's CB1, whether that's CB2, whether it's both of them. But here's something that you should know. Even going back to his two years as the D.C. in Philadelphia, his time in Carolina from 2011 through 2016, and his three years with the Bills, he's either been a head coach or a defensive coordinator in the NFL for 11 seasons, never once has he had the same two primary starters at cornerback for consecutive seasons. It's never happened. So piecing together cornerbacks' situations is all Sean McDermott's ever done. Now let's dig into the weeds here. Now let's keep in mind here that Sean McDermott, over the last eight seasons, has coached a top 10 Defense six times. Six of the last eight seasons that Sean McDermott has been either a defensive coordinator or a head coach, his defense has ranked in the top 10. So he's making this work, and it's not costing his team, right? He's still producing high-level defenses in the NFL. So now let's go through this journey, and let's talk about just how weird this is. 2012, his CB1 was Captain Munderland. This is with Carolina. CB1 was Captain Munderland. His CB2 was Josh Norman. Well, You say Josh Norman, and that may sound, oh, well, yeah, he was a young player, and he was probably a good player. No, Josh Norman was a rookie in 2012, a fifth-round pick out of Coastal Carolina. So Captain Munderland, your CB1, it was his third season in the league. Josh Norman, that fifth-rounder, you know, you kind of go into that, and and, and if that was what your mindset was going into the season, you would think that's absolutely crazy. But Sean McDermott pulled it off with that pairing. In 2013... His CB1 was, again, Captain Munnerlyn, but his CB2 was Melvin White. You ever heard of this guy, Melvin White? Well, you probably haven't. He only played two seasons in the NFL. He was the undrafted free agent rookie in 2013, and he was a starter for that Panthers defense opposite of Captain Munnerlyn. Josh Norman was not the primary starter in 2013 opposite of Captain Munnerlyn. It was Melvin White. 2014, Josh Norman was his CB1. Opposite of him was Antoine Kaysen, who never played another snap after that 2014 season in the NFL. Carolina at that time was his third team in three seasons. So not necessarily this desirable guy across the league. Again, it was his last year, and he wound up starting for the Panthers as the primary guy opposite of Josh Norman in 2014. 2015, Josh Norman was his CB1. His CB2 was Peanut Tillman, good football player. Also the last year of his career, 34 years old. Never played another snap after 2015. 2016, Sean McDermott had a complete set of rookie starters 
at cornerback, James Bradbury and Daryl Worley. They were both rookies. Daryl Worley was a third rounder out of West Virginia. James Bradbury, a second rounder out of Samford, not Stanford, Samford. So two rookie starters. Then he goes to Buffalo, right? CB1 is a rookie, Trey White, a first round pick. And then opposite of him was EJ Gaines, who at that point was already showing injury concerns since being drafted in 2014. He was a sixth round pick out of Missouri and missed all of the 2015 season and several games in 2016. So a risky situation there. 2018, Trey White is a CB1. And we remember this, it was a revolving door. It started with Vontae Davis, then it was Philip Gaines, then it was Ryan Smith, then it was Levi Wallace. And then 2019, it was Trey White as your CB1, and then Levi Wallace as his CB2 with some Kevin Johnson mixed in there. And again, Levi Wallace, an undrafted free agent. So this guy's never really had two big-time talents as his starting cornerbacks. He's always kind of had this revolving door, and it's worked for him. Again, six of the last eight years, a top-10 defense in the NFL. But the pattern here is, is very clear. He kind of has his guy. It was Captain Munderland for a while. Then it was Josh Norman. Then it became Trey White with some other oddities mixed in between there and then just figuring out opposite of him. And my concerns about CB2 are well-documented. I've said it a lot on this podcast when I think about the CB2 situation in Buffalo. But this is a big sample size that tells us that Sean McDermott always has a revolving door not only at cornerback in general, but especially at CB2. This is what he's done. This is what he's done. I want to tell Sean it doesn't have to be this hard. Like, you can have two good cornerbacks and pair them together for a long time and develop your scheme and, uh, you know, not have to coach up a different guy every year. But for whatever reason, the guy just doesn't seem to be interested in doing that. Now, I guess Levi Wallace, to an extent, is he's going into, like, his third season. So, you know, he's kind of becoming that guy, but you know, there's a good chance Josh Norman CB two and that for another season, you know, Sean McDermott doesn't have that, that same pairing again. So it's just what he's always done and it's worked for him. So you, you kind of can't argue with the results. Tom says, what player on the bills would be fun to see change positions? Personally, I'd love to see Taiwan Jones play cornerback or safety. I said to Tom uh, when I responded back to him, I said, that's a good pick with Taiwan Jones because I don't think a lot of people realize how good of an athlete he is. Uh, for me, I went with uh, Nick Easley. I'd like to see Nick Easley, a wide receiver, transition to slot cornerback or maybe even safety. You know, Nick Easley, a very shifty, quick twitch athlete um, that, uh, you know, I don't know that he's ever going to be able to be like a rostered slot receiver for the Bills. So, you know, let's see if he could play some slot cornerback. I think that would be interesting. I think he has the type of makeup that would make sense for that. B Mormon 2020 says, who would you rather the Bills play against? The Jarrett Stidham-led Patriots with no opt-outs or the Cam Newton-led Patriots with opt-outs? Seems like more might be on the way. I think I would play against preferably the Jarrett Stidham-led Patriots with no opt-outs because I think quarterback is that important of a position. And I think Cam Newton makes that a much more difficult team to defend than Jarrett Stidham, a guy with very minimal experience in the NFL with the very uh, underwhelming cast of, of weapons around him to really you know help elevate his play. And so uh, I would choose to have Stidham with no opt-outs as opposed to Newton with the opt-outs. Greg says, have you ever actually asked B. Mormon if he's the ex-NFL punter? 
No, I haven't. Be Mormon. Are you the ex-NFL punter? Hit me up in my DMs, and I will let everyone know next time we uh, do a Twitter Tuesday podcast what the answer to that is. I don't think he is. I don't think he is the punter, but maybe I'm, uh, I've am i been fooled all these times, and I'm, I've really been communicating back and forth with the former Bills punter. Timothy says, love the show. My question is, why wouldn't the NFL put sponsor names on teams' jerseys? Seems like a no-brainer to make up for some of the lost revenue, even if it is for one season. Also, who do you think wins the vacant guard spot after the Feliciano injury? I heard a lot about moving forward inside. Personally, I think that's a bad idea for continuity reasons. Luckily, we have depth to hopefully not skip a beat. Thanks for quenching my bills thirst for content all off season. Keep up the great work. Go bills. Thank you, Timothy. Uh, so a couple different questions here. Yeah, it's a good idea on the, on the sponsors, right? If you can recoup some revenue and sell a patch on jerseys and get paid some money and help out the revenue streams for the NFL, you should do that. That's not a bad idea. And I thought with, you know, you saw the new Rams uniforms this year. It's kind of like they had that patch spot already kind of like textured in that, you know, you could see that, developing into a spot where you would see it an advertisement. So yeah, it's a good idea. Send a, send a Roger Goodell an email. See if, see if he could get on that. Um, and then to Timothy's credit, he asked this question before the Brian Winter signing um, and uh, you know, kind of what that meant for the Cody Ford possibility. So I will address that in saying that I don't think Cody Ford's now going to be an option. And that I think Brian Winters is really going to get a good crack at this. I'm anxious to see what his contract details are going to be because I think it's going to be a couple bucks. And, you know, I think Ian Rappaport said that he had a market out there. And so, you know, I I think that um, I think there's a good chance we see that filled by Brian Winters. Adam says, which non-quarterback injury would impact the AFC the most this season and the NFC? I thought this was a good question. Uh, For the AFC, I'm going to go with Derrick Henry. And I know you're probably saying right now, Joey, all you ever do is talk about how bad it is to pay running backs, blah, blah, blah. You're right. I do believe that. But if your entire offense is structured around this power run game, then you better uh, you better have your bell cow back be available for you and, and Derrick Henry. And like I think if the Titans were to lose Derrick Henry, their identity of their offense is very much in jeopardy. You know, I think that he helped uh, Ryan Tannehill really kind of find himself uh, this this year, I mean, we saw Tannehill for years in Miami. We knew what kind of quarterback he was. When all of a sudden he's in this rushing attack in Tennessee that's really dynamic with Derrick Henry, and this guy's lighting up the scoreboard, pushing the ball down the field, thriving in play action. Well, if you lose Derrick Henry, then that's very much in jeopardy. And their, their backups behind Henry are like Darrington Evans, who's a rookie from App State, who's not a bell cow back. He's like a, a shifty scat back type player. Uh, they have... Uh, Sean Wilson, I mean, th- th- there's nothing here. There's no, They have no depth at running back. They made the power run game the identity of their offense and did nothing, and I mean nothing, to make sure that it would stay afloat if Derrick Henry were to go down. On the NFC side of things, give me Michael Thomas, wide receiver from the Saints. I think the Saints did a very good thing this offseason by bringing in Emmanuel Sanders because – you know, outside of Thomas at wide receiver, like the team had nothing in previous years. And this guy was just a high volume receiver and he had no help. I think Emmanuel Sanders is going to be a really nice addition to that offense that will balance it out a bit. But I still don't think like this is an offense that will stay afloat to the level that we expect it to, to a level that's going to challenge for the NFC championship without Michael Thomas. So I think that's the player in the NFC that 
would have the biggest impact uh, if they were to go down. Michael says, hey, Joe, looking back at the 2018 draft, you could argue the Giants should have went for a quarterback instead of Saquon Barkley. Could you mock the next quarterbacks taken? I'm wondering if the Bills would have taken a quarterback or even waited another year. So this is what I think would have happened. Let's say that um, let's say that the Giants took Sam Darnold. I think you then have a situation where the Jets would have picked either Josh Allen or Josh Rosen. I have no idea which one they would have picked. If they would have picked Josh Allen and he was off the board, I, I don't think the Bills were going to pick Josh Rosen. And I don't, quite honestly, I don't think the Bills would have picked Lamar Jackson either. I think what would have happened is you would have seen the Bills at number 12 draft Tremaine Edmonds. And at number 22, I think the Bills would have drafted Mason Rudolph. That's my. That's what I think would have happened. And I think I, Brandon Bean actually said it. He said when he was talking about getting Tremaine Edmonds, you know, at 18, they traded up for 22 to get to 18 and get Tremaine Edmonds. He said, you know, he was a guy that we thought about as an option at 12 if the quarterbacks didn't fall right. So I think they would have picked him at 12 and they would have picked Mason Rudolph at 22. That's my guess. Um, all right, Drew says, there's been plenty of discussion about who should fill the Isaiah McKenzie role this year, and I think there are only three good candidates. Stephon Diggs, John Brown, and Cole Beasley. We want to run a lot of three wide receiver sets, and unlike last year, this year we have a clear top three. I want to keep our most talented guys on the field, and I want to run a bunch of hurry-up where we keep the same personnel on the field for the whole drive and wear our opponent's defense out. I think John Brown is plenty capable of playing the role and professional enough that he wouldn't feel disrespected by being casted as a gadget guy. Would having Brown run things like jet motions compromise his production as a receiver? If not, how do you think he would do in that role? I think Drew's got some good points here. You know, I mean, like, see what you can do with those top three. Keep your best players on the field. And when you bring in Isaiah McKenzie, right, like, there's some predictability about what's going to happen when he's on the field. He's going to do jet motion, and you kind of know what's going to happen. Well, if you keep your top three in, then that predictability goes away a little bit. I think it's a pretty good take. You know, why can't John Brown do that stuff? I don't know why he can't. Um, probably can. I don't think you're worried about overusing John Brown, you know? So I think this is not a bad idea. Now, I do think that you'll want to – you won't want that to be his primary role, obviously, and I don't think you hinted at that. You still want John Brown to be John Brown and do the things that he did last year that made him successful. But if he did that sometimes, I think that would be okay. You may want to go with four wide receiver sets sometimes and still have that McKinsey role. So, I mean, you, you, could, you could still do some things with that. But if you needed to have that – and you want to stick with 11 personnel, yeah, why can't why can't John Brown do it? I think it's a fair point. Matt says, Matt, oh boy. He said, let's revisit this a year later. Which is better, tacos or burritos? This was something I dealt with last year on the podcast, and I think I got more criticism over my answer than anything I've ever said about football. I don't remember what I said, though, but I'm going to tell you how I feel about it today. Which is better, tacos or burritos? They're both delicious. I love them both. Burritos, I think this is what I said, and I'm sticking with it. Burritos, I get them the same way every time, 
rice, beans, you know, whatever protein I choose. And then the same like vegetables. It's the same thing every time. And I, and I love it for that. And it's very good. It's filling. I like burritos with tacos. I'm more willing to navigate out and try some different stuff. You know, I'll get chicken tacos. I'll get fried chicken tacos, steak tacos, pork tacos with different types of like fillings and, and sauces in there. And I know you could do the same with burritos, but for whatever reason, it, maybe it's a personal problem. I just get my burrito the same way every time with tacos. I'll get four tacos. I'll get four different tacos, four different ways. I love that versatility. You know, if I get a burrito, I'm getting one burrito. That's it. It's done. It's going to be the way that it is every single time with tacos. I like that. I can get four different experiences. So I prepared to get yelled at for disrespecting the versatility of a burrito, but I love them both. Ben says, if the NFL does not complete a substantial portion of the season, how do you think they will rank the teams for the 2021 draft? And B, do you think they should rank the teams for the 2021 draft? Man, this is complicated. Um, You can kind of see the argument for keeping the order the same. You could see a lottery-type system where you kind of reverse the order from round to round. You can see postponing the draft. I don't know that I have a great idea here that I would sit here and say is the right plan. I, I I don't think that's... I don't think that's in my wheelhouse, but I really hope that we don't have to figure this out. We get the season and the order is determined like it is every single year. So sorry, I don't really have an answer for you there, Ben. Uh, maybe some other folks have some ideas. Tweet us at Lockdown Bills at the, at the Joe Marino uh, to let us know what uh, you think uh, would be a good idea for the draft order in 2021 if they don't complete a substantial portion of the season. The Real JP says, with the typical turnover in coaching staffs and how lucky Josh Allen has been to have the same staff, if Dable leaves, is there an offensive coordinator out there that you think would be a good fit? Is Dorsey on the fast track to being an offensive quarter in Buffalo or elsewhere? Um, you know, Dorsey's t- it's tough for me to say on Dorsey because he's, he's basically been a, qu- a quarterback's coach. I don't know what his offensive philosophies are. I know which offenses he's been in, but I don't know. I don't have any idea of, of whether or not I believe in him as, a, as an OC. You know, I think Josh Allen was a better player last year and there was good growth there. And I think Ken Dorsey obviously did a good job working with Cam Newton, but I have no idea how that translates to like um, being an offensive coordinator. I'll give you a name that I like, and I'm sure that he'll be an offensive coordinator pretty soon. Press Taylor. He's a quarterback's coach and passing game coordinator for the Eagles. 32 years old. He's been with the Eagles since 2013. He got there with Chip Kelly. And I think it says a lot that he remained on staff with Doug Peterson. And I really like so much about the way Doug Peterson runs offense. I love the uh, personnel groupings that he runs. He runs a lot of 12 personnel. Uh, I love that he he really kind of trains all of his offensive skill players to play multiple spots and his his system is very much concept based as opposed to you do this on this play there's a lot of like built-in checks uh, to it I like the way that he's developed Carson Wentz I like the way that they've been able to get production out of Nick Foles I like that they invest in quarterbacks like they brought in Jalen Hurts and they want to see what they can do with him 
Uh, so there's some there's some philosophy that he's been exposed to. There's some been some production that makes me intrigued. That thinks he deserves a chance as an offensive coordinator. And I like the idea of uh, of him potentially running a very like quarterback friendly scheme, but having a lot of innovation and uh, creativity to it. So Press Taylor would be a guy that I would be very intrigued to see uh, work with Josh Allen if um, Brian Dable were to exit. Uh, Jeremy says, isn't it time to replace the 12th man on the Bills Wall of Fame with Bills Mafia? I mean, I'm for that. That sounds cool. That would be awesome. You got that on your on your uh, Wall of Fame? I mean, that seems pretty cool to me. Maybe there's something like the team doesn't want to put the word Mafia on the wall. I don't know. Maybe there's some trademark issues. I'm not sure. But I think it would be cool, and I, I support it. Max says, as you mentioned on Monday, the Bills may need to trade for a veteran quarterback if Josh Allen flops, and he's referring to last Monday. Aaron Rodgers is a name that intrigues me because they drafted Jordan Love. Do you think or do you like this option, and what do you think it would take to trade for Rodgers? Also, he's a cold-weather quarterback, which is nice. Go Bills. I mean, look, if Josh Allen flops, there is literally no other quarterback I'd rather have You know, that's reasonable. Than, than Aaron Rodgers. I think Aaron Rodgers would absolutely maximize the Bills' offensive personnel. Uh, he's got a proven track record in the league. I think he's got plenty of good football left in him. I think that he's very prideful and that he wants to be mentioned with the likes of Drew Brees and Tom Brady, and he's not. Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd love to see him in Buffalo. I'd, I'd love to not see him in Buffalo, to be completely honest with you. I'd love for Josh Allen to be the guy um, and, and, you know, take the team far every single year. But in the case where Josh Allen flops, like you said, yeah, give me Aaron Rodgers to pick up the pieces and run. I mean, I'm I'm for that for sure. I think it'd probably take a first-round pick at least. Um, they don't really have a very clean opportunity to trade him this offseason based on a couple of things. The, the bonus that he's owed like the third day of the league year and they restructured his deal uh, in such a way that, that changed a lot of how the – Salary turned into bonuses, and they'd just be they'd be eating so much money if they were to trade him this offseason. Twenty twenty two is much more reasonable for the Packers to move on from Rodgers, um, where they have cap savings that they will get. I think twenty two million, um, and it was just a much cleaner break. So I don't know that they're able to get that done in twenty twenty one, but twenty twenty two it's a possibility. I do think it probably costs you at least a first round pick. Uh, even if he is older, to be honest with you. Now, if you do it in 2021 and you're willing to like do some things to offset his contract and you know help out the Packers, maybe you can get him for a bit of a discount. But, I mean, we're talking about one of the elite quarterbacks in the game, Hall of Famer, still producing at a high level. Like, I I don't – I mean, he's, they're not just going to give him away. I, I, you're you're going to have to – I think – I think a first-round pick will be involved, at least. Last one comes from John, who says, My question is with the Patriots' losses and the Bills' gains. Is the pressure turned up on Sean McDermott to not just get to the playoffs but win games? I love McDermott as a coach, but worry he may get unfairly labeled as a Chuck Knox or Marty Schottenheimer type if he doesn't start to win playoff games soon. So, let's I mean, look. The, McDermott's been to the playoffs two or three years as the head coach of the Bills. The first year... Not a person in the world expect the Bills to, to get to the postseason, right? They backdoor in at nine and seven, and lose like a was it ten to three to the Jaguars? Excuse me, Jaguars. 
I mean, that was, I mean, honestly, that was as, as much of a loser mentality as this is. It was one of those situations where, damn it, we were happy to be there. Then he goes the next time to the playoffs in two seasons, right? And the Bills lose in overtime in a game where they had multiple chances to win. I think Sean McDermott is absolutely safe in Buffalo. Like, give him the extension now. Lock him up for five more years. Whatever, you know, like, this has been stability and leadership that Buffalo hasn't seen, man, in a long, long, long time. I believe Sean McDermott's the man for the job. I think his his messaging is spot on, the way he's built this football team, the way he's embraced the community. He's absolutely a coach that I think you can win a championship with. And, um, I mean, I'm not anywhere close to, like, Marty Schottenheimer-type labels on him, you know? I, I think the success is going to come, and I'd, I'd extend him right now. All right, folks, that'll do it for us today here on this podcast. Great week of Twitter Tuesday questions. Um, hope you enjoyed it. I really enjoyed answering them, and, you know, you guys always do a good job of uh, causing me to think a little bit and certainly get into the discussion points that you want to hear. So thanks so much for sending in those questions. Uh, we're going to tackle the tough questions with the Bills defensive line tomorrow. Again, the email address, joe at the draftnetwork.com. Send me a direct message on Twitter at the Joe Marino. Whatever's on your mind with the Bills defensive line, get those items in. We'll address them here tomorrow. I'm looking forward to getting back to that series. I think we've had such good discussions, um, and I look forward to that happening again tomorrow. So uh, make sure you don't miss it. Make sure that you're subscribed. I always kindly ask that you rate, review, and share the podcast, and I look forward to catching up with you again tomorrow.